You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading today is from John chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 1. It's kind of a long one, but we've got to get the whole story in. So, Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, If he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant he was taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, 
and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord.
death with the endless list of what ifs. You even see one of the sisters, Lord, if you had been here, maybe he would, would still be alive. If we would have done this differently, if we would have done this differently, if maybe I would have had that last conversation, or if I would have just called this doctor, if we just had made these different you know, decisions, maybe they still would be alive. We begin to blame ourselves, we begin to blame others, we even begin to blame God. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to make sense of something that we can just never make sense of. Death is senseless. Here in John 11, we're also invited to see the way that Jesus faces death, what he says about death, how he feels about death, and ultimately, what he does about death. So here's where we're going to begin. Let's begin with this sort of strange thing that we see in this story, and it's this, that Jesus delays Jesus delays. One of the things we see illustrated here is the unhurried rhythm of the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus is never hurried. There's never a moment in the scriptures where you see him anxious and, and hurried. He's never made frantic by situations, not by death, not by disaster, not by emergencies, not by threats, not by catastrophe. Jesus is not hurried. And what Jesus demonstrates here is really a few things. The first thing he's demonstrating is his confidence in God's resurrection power. Jesus delays in part because he knows that if he shows up four days later or 400 days later, he is still perfectly capable of raising Lazarus from the dead. The second thing we see here is that Jesus is demonstrating his glory as the son of God. This is not some little trivial thing to raise a dead body. This is displaying the power of God. But what we also see here is that Jesus is demonstrating his authority over death. Think about this. Death is so in submission to Jesus that he is not even going to allow death to determine his timeline. Death is knocking on Lazarus's door. Death is coming for him and is going to take him away within one day of Jesus hearing about this announcement. And then Jesus delays. It's as if Jesus is saying, death, you, you don't control me. I control you. Now, without some important details here included in this passage, it would be easy to think that Jesus is just toying with these people. He's just like flexing his divinity muscles at their expense, but this is actually the furthest thing from the truth. Look at me again in verses five and six. Now Jesus, what? Loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He loved them, so he delayed. This delay is not a lack of love. This is because he loves them so much. See, here's the problem. We misinterpret God's delay for him being cold. We misinterpret God's delay as him being disinterested. We think that if God does not come through how and when we expect him to, he must be unloving, he must be uncaring, or he just must simply be incapable. But here we see his delay is for our sake. It's for our good. Now, he could have rushed there and healed him. 
He even could have done this really crazy thing that we see elsewhere in the scriptures. He could have healed Lazarus from a distance. He could have been like, he's healed. Bada bing, bada boom, it's done. But he doesn't. Why? Why is Jesus doing this? And the answer is because the agony of waiting was forming something important and life-changing in everyone there. For his disciples that are along for the ride, for Mary and Martha, for the extended family, even for Lazarus himself. Look with me again in verse 15. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. I want you to consider this. His delay is not against you. God's delay in your life is not a sign that God stopped loving you or that he's against you. It is actually for your sake. It's for your good. Let me put a sharper point on it. Jesus refuses to yield to your timeline because he loves you for your sake. Sometimes Jesus appears to be distant and lingering when you think that you need him most for your sake. Why? Because Jesus is bringing you to the place where you and I, like these sisters, call out to him. He's bringing us to that place where we begin to wrestle with Jesus. Jesus, where were you? And he's bringing you to the place where you, like Martha, say, Jesus, I do not understand you at all, but I trust you. I trust you. I don't get what you're doing here. I, I don't get this, but I trust you. Why is he delaying? It's also because he's heightening the impact of the miracle to come. Now, this is totally going to be lost on us because we have been conditioned to think uh, in terms of instant gratification. If I have to wait for something, it must not be good. The best is when it comes immediately, not so in the kingdom of God. And through the agony of waiting, what Jesus is doing is he's maximizing their joy and relief when it finally does come. The waiting is maximizing the relief of that tension that's to come. Now, when, we, when Jesus finally did arrive, Lazarus had already died, and we're told later, which we're going to get to this portion in, of John 11 in just a minute, but we're told that he, had been, he, he died and he had uh, been buried and he was now dead for four days. Now, this turns out to be a very intentional uh, amount of days because in Jewish folklore, in extra-biblical writings, it was believed that the spirit of someone's body would linger around the body in the tomb or whatever for three days, and then on the fourth day, the spirit was like, okay, there's no returning, and would depart to go to the spirit realm or whatever. So Jesus arrives on that day, I believe, very intentionally, at the very point where there is no possibility of life just returning to this man. We are past the point of no return. The body is already stinking. The body is already breaking down and decomposing. This situation is totally beyond the realm of human possibility, which turns out to be exactly where Jesus works best. 
This is all very important because what Jesus is going to demonstrate here is at the heart of his ministry and really the reason that Jesus took on flesh to come dwell among us. Jesus didn't simply come to make bad people better. Jesus didn't simply come to polish up people's lives. Jesus came to make dead people alive. Lazarus's death is a foreshadowing. One, it's foreshadowing the looming death that Jesus is going to experience on the cross very soon. His disciples are like, Jesus, I don't know if you get this, but if you go to Jerusalem, it's over. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. I know where I'm going. But it's also a foreshadowing of what Jesus would do for us through his death and resurrection. We're told in Ephesians chapter 2 that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins... God made us alive together with Christ. Lazarus is a foreshadowing of what God does in the life of the believer. Not making bad people better, but making dead people alive. Hallelujah. Jesus delays intentionally. Secondly, we see here Jesus speaks. And when Jesus finally does come, he does finally come we're told that Martha runs out to greet him look at me again in verses uh, 21 through um, 24 Martha said to Jesus Lord if you had been here let me tell you how to be Jesus and everything if you had been here my brother would not have died you could have stopped this but even now I know that whatever you ask from God God will give you and so Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So catch this. Jesus says, I am about to bring new life into this situation of death. And Martha's like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I get it. I know. In the last days, in some distant future, you're going to work it all out in eternity. Okay, I get it. Martha illustrates something that we can experience, probably all of us experience in our faith today as well, where we have this sort of vague hope for eternity, some sort of just abstract hope for eternity, but we lack concrete hope for today. Yes, we believe that God can do big cosmic stuff, he holds the stars in motion and all that sort of thing, but we're not really sure he's all that interested in our life today. We're not all that sure how much he cares about our life in the here and now. See, this is where Christianity becomes extremely theoretical. This is where Christianity lacks any sort of like practical application in our lives. And what happens is a number of things. We stop praying. When we have just some sort of vague understanding about eternity, but we don't really think God is involved in our lives right now, we stop praying. Or if we keep praying, it's just we pray rote prayers, very vague prayers. Oh, Lord, uh, bless us, like pr protect us on our way to work. I don't, I don't know. We just like, we don't even know what to pray. We stop praying for healing. We stop praying for people's bodies to be healed. We, we stop 
believing that God can transform lives. We stop believing that God can transform and and reconcile broken relationships. We start tolerating sin and start tolerating apathy and we start making excuses for a bunch of unhealthy patterns in our lives, whether they're sin patterns or thought patterns. Uh, We turn to the experts with far more confidence than we turn to God for help. And what ends up happening is we downplay the now power of the gospel. He saved me from my past sins I guess there's some, like, some sort of vague heaven coming, but I'm not sure where Jesus is now. And we forfeit the grace, the abundant grace that God intends for every single one of us to experience right now. In our lives, right here. Look at me again in verse 25 and 26. So Jesus said to her, and here's the big I am statement. I am the resurrection, and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. Yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Yes, for those who trust in Jesus, we will be raised on the last day. Yes, There is hope beyond the grave. Yes, for the Christian, death is not final. It is just the entrance to eternal life. Yes, the resurrection means so much for our future and so much for our eternity. But we do not have to wait to the end of history to experience Jesus' newness. It's future and it's present. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and I'm the life. I am then, and I'm now. The Apostle Paul would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. What he's saying is that through faith in Jesus, we are now, right now, raised to new life. We are now experiencing a new motivation, a new heart, new moral desires, new power to live and love in a way that reflects Jesus to the rest of the world. We don't have to wait for newness in the future. Jesus offers us newness now. Can I get an amen? So, this was lost on me until just preparing for this message. Turns out that Jesus is in Bethany to bring life to more than one person. Yes, obviously he is there to raise Lazarus out of the tomb uh, by his word of power. But he's also there to raise Martha out of her dying, dry orthodoxy with the word of his grace. He's there to administer a physical resurrection, but he's also there to bring spiritual resurrection. What's happening in Martha right now, she's experiencing spiritual resurrection. A first, uh, actually a second century uh, church leader once said this, the glory of God is a person fully alive, which is pretty amazing. What it means is that God is most glorified in us, which is Our mission statement, by the way. 
God is most glorified in us when we are most alive in him. When we are most animated by his spirit. In a recent book called You Are Not Your Own, an author named Alan Noble explored this very popular phrase that we've all heard today about feeling alive. I just want to feel alive. And he talks about how people will do all sorts of like wild things to feel alive. I want to go climb Mount Everest. So I just feel alive. I'm going to go jump out of an airplane and defy the physics of, I don't know, I'm just like do what a body should not do because I need to feel alive. He said this, it's a long quote. He said, what do we mean when we say, I want to feel alive? I believe there are two desires at work here. Sometimes it's a desire to tangibly feel our aliveness in a world that constantly mediates experience through technology and screens and busyness. So intellectually, we know that we are not robots, but every once in a while, it's good to jump out of an airplane because no robot would do something so absurd. (laughs) Apparently, he's not seen Will Smith movies because I think that that's happened. Alternatively, he says, to feel alive is the desire to live a life to its fullest. I think that that's what many of us mean when we say it. To live lives to the fullest. We're all going to die, and if we don't do something meaningful and significant, then we will have wasted the only thing that truly matters. So we may write a bucket list of experiences that we want to have before we die. We must climb this mountain. We must visit all 50 states. We must plant 10,000 trees or raise successful children before we die. Whatever our goals, we want to feel like we've done enough to make our lives worthwhile, to feel like we matter, to feel alive. Can anyone associate with this? I, I want to feel... Like, I didn't just waste my breath and just, like, take up space. It's a good desire. But the question is, how do we fulfill that desire? And what Jesus shows us is that our good, deep desire to live a life that matters, Jesus desires for you to live a life that matters. That desire is fulfilled only in him. Through faith, we are raised to new life, a life that the Bible says matters not only now, but into eternity. Not one that depends on thrill, not one that depends on a bucket list, not one that depends on worldly success or achievement or fame, but a new life empowered by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, now at work within us so that our lives matter. So, do you believe this? Jesus asks her point blank, do you believe this? It's the question that Martha has to answer for herself, and really, it's the question that you owe it to yourself to answer today. Do you believe this? Let's look thirdly here at Jesus weeps. Another kind of strange uh, mention in this, this passage Because as I mentioned earlier, without some important details included here, it would be easy to think that Jesus is just flexing his divinity at everyone's expense. Like, I'll come around when I come around. 
You guys can all cry and be sad, but then I'll, I'll come and save the day. But again, nothing is further from the truth. And here's how we know. Three times we're told that Jesus is deeply and emotionally stirred. After Mary comes to him and falls at his, uh, at his feet and he sees her agony because her brother has died, after he hears all of the voices of all of the people mourning, as he sees and experiences the devastation of death right here in front of him, John records these very important lines. He records, number one, that Jesus was deeply moved, which means to experience a visceral reaction. It means literally to be gutted, to be moved in one's bowels. Jesus just lost his appetite. He's sick to his stomach. We also read that he was greatly troubled, which literally means to shake profusely. You ever been so distraught that your body shakes? Maybe it's like a strange mix of adrenaline and, and just feeling out of control, but his body shook. And in the shortest verse in the Bible, we're also told that what? He wept. Which means to burst uncontrollably into tears. There's so much we can say about this, but I just want this to sink in. This person that I have just described to you is your savior. This person that I've just described, that John has just described for us, is God. This is the one who is at the center of the Christian faith. This is the one who continues to be at the center of human history. We divide time still based on this person's life. This is the one who embodies the character of God perfectly. This is the one who conquered death and the grave through his cross and resurrection. This is the one who meets you in your suffering and in your pain and in your questions and in your doubt. This is your savior. Weeping and shaking and losing his appetite. Now let me remind you, John's, one of John's primary objectives, objectives in the gospel of John is to highlight Jesus' divinity. It is intentional that John is highlighting these I am statements because it's a callback to something we see in the Old Testament where Moses is like, well, who should I say sent me? And God says, tell him I am sent you. John is highlighting the divinity of of Jesus, and yet he can't help but honestly highlight this very human, very raw, real moment. Now, I want you to think about this. If John was writing a myth, which many people believe, if John was writing some sort of exaggerated account about Jesus in order to get people to believe that Jesus was something that he really wasn't, then he definitely would have left this portion out. Because it doesn't fit the narrative. But what we see here, what we get here, is the real Jesus, who is both fully God and fully human, who has ultimate, unending power to conquer death itself, and yet very real emotions, very real care, very real compassion in the face of death, who experiences all the same stuff that we experience in real life, real sorrow over what hurts us. 
So you know what that means for us today? It means that you do not have to choose faith over grief. There are a lot of people in our church that have experienced a lot of grief over these last couple years. Death has touched our church in a lot of ways, painful ways. But what we see here is that in no shape, way, shape, or form do tears undermine trust. Do not wipe your tears away. If anything, weeping in the face of death is profoundly faithful. Grieving is how we align our hearts with Jesus' hearts. Grieving is how we actually reflect the love and life of Jesus. Did you notice that when the Jews saw Jesus weeping, not when they see him show up, not when they hear him speaking, when they see him weeping, they say, see how he loved him. What highlights the love of Jesus Christ to our city? Our tears. The world would try to convince us that death is natural, that death is common. Uh, even our children's movies would tell us that death is part of the circle of life and something that we should expect and we should you know, come against with a level head and a sort of stoic demeanor. But the gospel tells us that death is literally the least natural thing that we will ever experience. Not something to calmly accept, but something to passionately reject as final. And here's why God did not create our beautiful world for death. God created our beautiful world and our beautiful lives for life. Death is an enemy that wars against our minds. That's why we can't make sense of it. Don't try. Death wars against our hearts, and death wars against our bodies. Death is described as an enemy that we stand against in the life and hope of Jesus Christ. So when we are grieving, and we are going to grieve, or the people around us are grieving, and the people around us are probably grieving, two things are necessary. Truth and tears. We need, especially in the face of death, in the face of things that cause us grief and sorrow, we need the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need the explicit hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to be pointed to Jesus in those moments more than ever. But we also need the tenderness of Jesus. We need the freedom to grieve in an unhurried, unregimented way. Did you notice how Martha comes to greet Jesus first, but Mary holds back? They don't go at the same time. And I don't know if this is intentional or not, but I think what it highlights is that Martha runs first and is like ready to tackle this head on, and then, and then Mary holds back. But then when she comes to Jesus, she falls at his feet. And I think what we see in this story is that people grieve differently. People grieve in various ways. People have various timelines. People express themselves differently. The point is not so much 
how you grieve. The point isn't so much how long that you grieve. The point is this, where you bring your grief. Because for both Mary and Martha, wherever they are on their timelines, however they express themselves, both of them bring their grief to the feet of Jesus. Why? Because maybe they know intuitively what we know explicitly from the book of Hebrews. This is our sympathetic high priest. Everything, anything and everything that we will experience, Jesus is able to say with confidence, I know. I know. Let's look finally here at Jesus raises. It's the last portion of the passage and we've intentionally left it to the end. But I think many of you know the story. Maybe some of you don't. Look with me again in verses 38 through 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and the stone lay against it and Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead men said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus, I don't know if you know how this works but it's not gonna be pretty in there. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Two things we see from this final portion, two ways that we must respond. The first is that we have to obey his voice. We have to respond to his command. Guys, this is not just a sentimental story to embrace and cherish in our hearts. This is the voice of Jesus Christ calling out to us, one that we must obey as well. A voice that we must respond to. Now here we see the power of God's grace revealed in this act of obedience. Jesus says, Lazarus, get out here, and he comes out. So God's grace empowers his obedience, obedient response. We cannot obey Jesus without him first raising us, no matter no amount of willpower I would have ever done for this to work. Without Jesus' resurrection power, nothing would have compelled him to obey. It's Jesus who raises him, but here's the thing that we have to catch here. Lazarus must stand up and walk out. Lazarus must respond. Lazarus must obey the call of Jesus, and so must we. Today, if you are hearing this message, you are hearing Jesus' summons. You are hearing Jesus' personal call to you, inviting you into new life through faith. Respond to him. Say yes. Stand to your feet. Come out. Obey. The other thing we see here is that we must walk in his freedom. I think it's interesting because Lazarus 
was raised to new life. But he's still bound by these grave clothes. So imagine this. It's a very like mummy-like moment. Jesus, when he was raised, he had the decency to fold his clothes neatly. Lazarus is like, all right, get me out of here. He's still wrapped in the grave clothes. He's still like stumbling around because these things are covering his face. And I think this is a fitting description of some of us. Here's the description we see here. Raised to newness, but still tangled up in the old. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this, of what we were instructed by Jesus. Every single one of us were instructed by Jesus. You were instructed, he says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The resurrection call of Jesus Christ is not a one-time deal. It's not a, well, I said yes 20 years ago at some church camp, or I said yes six months ago at some altar call, I'm good. No, it's a daily shout. It is daily Jesus saying over us, unbind him, unbind her, let them free. So when we wake up every morning, it is a new day to hear Jesus' commanding voice into newness and to respond. Every single day is a day to obey Jesus. Every single day is a new day to repent of our sins and turn again to Jesus Christ in faith. Every day is a day to dare to hope in the face of things breaking down in our world. Every single day is a day to rely upon the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit to, new, to live new lives for Jesus. And every single day is a day to put off the old to take off the grave clothes and to put on Jesus Christ, to step out and walk free, unbind him, unbind her in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for it.